This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm delighted to have Chris Irwin. He's a health researcher, writer, and coach. He has his master's degree in exercise and nutrition science, where he studied the effects of low-carb diets on human performance and therapeutics. He's the education manager at Perfect Keto, and he's the author of Keto Answers. Welcome, Chris. It's so nice to connect with you. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Super excited to get to chat. Yeah. So explain to me how, you know, this guy who has this really strong science background in academia, how you kind of pivoted into the ketologist. How did that process take place? Yeah. So it was about four or five years ago, I was just finishing up my master's degree at the university of Tampa. And I was kind of in this in-between spot where it was, you know, do I want to continue in academics and pursue my PhD, which was kind of my intention when I started my master's program, or do I want to kind of go a different route and, you know, kind of get out and do my own thing and do some entrepreneurship, get into the industry. And I think it was, you know, I had a very interesting internship at the very end of my time in grad school, where I got to do some animal research at university of Southern Florida. And it was an opportunity for me to get to kind of catch a glimpse of what the PhD setting would be like and you know kind of figure out whether or not that was going to be something for me and going through that for a few weeks I quickly realized that that was not the route that I wanted to go as much as I enjoyed like getting to learn from incredibly bright minds I wasn't a huge fan of like doing all the animal research getting bitten by rats every day <laughs> like just stuff like that that was just wasn't really my thing but also at the very same time I had this kind of realization where once I started seeing, you know, I started studying keto in grad school. And during that time, I started really reading all of the available research out there, the stuff on diabetes and Alzheimer's and cancer, which at the time there wasn't as much, but there was still some starting to come out. And I started to kind of have this sense of frustration where it was like, you know, this diet is a great solution for a lot of problems that people are facing, but all of this information that these incredible researchers are putting out there is being locked away in these journals where either they're not accessible by people or they're just, you know, really hard to interpret. Like not everybody is trained to be able to read a research paper. So it, that was kind of my lights on moment of realizing that I wanted to do something to make this information more accessible to the general population. And that's where the ketologist kind of came out was it was like, you know, let's create a brand where I can take more complex scientific topics and break them down in both ways that are easy to understand, but then also easy to apply, um, which, you know, at the time back in 2015, 2016, that was lacking. There's a lot more of that out there now, but back then there was, you know, very few social media accounts doing that, not many blogs putting out information. So it just seemed like this kind of wide open opportunity to get in there and, and do that. So yeah, I think it was just kind of a perfect timing for me, really. It was like right before keto was really starting to blow up and get big, but still at a moment where there was enough information out there and enough kind of validation for this diet and its uses for different health problems. Well, and I think one of the common misnomers is people assume much like they do with intermittent fasting that it's new or novel. Yeah. And so, you know, based on, you know, what I know of the ketogenic diet is that it initially started in the early 1900s used primarily for epilepsy. So people that have seizure disorders. And so it really isn't something that is, you know, it's all of a sudden just sprung up in 2015, but 
kind of walk us through the history of how the ketogenic diet has kind of evolved and shifted and changed? Because I think in many ways, you know, even based on, you know, your own experiences that keto in many ways has evolved into things like dirty keto mm-hmm. and keto bars. And so it's kind of like taking the tenets of ketogenic diet and taking the standard American diet and trying to make it a scooch healthier. Mm-hmm. And then out of that comes the ketogenic junk food. And you could apply that to any paleo primal. I mean, there's plenty of it that's out there. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think when you look at diet history, I mean, you can trace back roots of keto like dieting, you know, back hundreds and thousands of years, you know, I think we, the way that we see diet trends like ebb and flow today, that's been going on throughout history. But, you know, we didn't really start seeing the term keto popping up until the early 1920s. And the situation was there was, you know, at the time fasting was kind of the go-to treatment for epilepsy. And that's something we've known for a long time. Fasting is very effective for epilepsy. But one of the issues for, with fasting for children with epilepsy is that it's hard for them to maintain their typical growth curve, right? So that was an issue is that, you know, these children need to eat so that they can maintain proper development. So at the time there was two different doctors. One was kind of studying the effects of fasting and and was able to find that a lot of the benefits of fasting were coming out of the ketosis that was occurring. And at the very same time, there was another doctor who started realizing that you could, you know, mimic this state of ketosis or mimic this fasting state by just eating a, you know, removing carbohydrates from the diet and eating a lot of fat which, you know, now we know that the eating the fat part isn't necessary for ketosis to occur, but that's what they found at the time. So, um, born was this ketogenic diet that its intention was to mimic the, you know, what's happening in the physiological occurrences of fasting while allowing the children to eat. And it was used for, you know, I don't know the exact amount of years off the top of my head for how long it was used for, but it was used for quite a while as uh, really a, a standard treatment for the condition. And then what happened is, is we invented anti-epileptic drugs that were very effective and, you know, everybody would much prefer the pill over the hard work of having to, you know, maintain a diet. So keto really died. It, it fell off. And, you know, you see, when you look at the trends of research, you really see it fall off after the twenties. You just don't really see it popping up very often. Uh, there's a couple, you know, starvation research studies where you, you see ketosis popping up a little bit more, but really not much mention of the ketogenic diet. And then in the nineties, you kind of see it start to circle back a little bit. Uh, you start seeing, you know, the low carb movement starting to grow. And then, you know, I would say probably like late, you know, like 2008 to 2012 is when, you know, ketogenic diet really started to pop back up more in the mainstream. And at this point it was more for weight loss. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the low carb craze, the Adkins craze had already, you know, we'd kind of already cycled through that. We knew that low carb was effective for weight loss, but didn't really know much else, you know, besides that. It wasn't as much research out about, you know, the effects of insulin and insulin resistance wasn't as popular then. It was just that, hey, this low carb diet tends to help people lose weight. This keto diet is a little bit different from Atkins and that, you know, it's not as high protein. It's a little bit lower protein, a little bit higher fat. And that was kind of the reintroduction of keto. And then during that time, there was a lot of scientists that were starting to come out, putting out really good research. I know around like the, I think it was 2008, uh, Dr. Jeff Volek put out some really interesting studies looking at 
like blood lipids, looking at like cholesterol and things like that on keto. And I think that kind of further helped, you know, just solidify that this diet had some staying power. And then I would say probably around 2015, 2016 was when we really start seeing a big boom in keto dieting Mm -hmm. search terms. If you look at Google trends, it was booming during that time. Everybody was talking about it. And during that time, we kind of saw two things happen. One was that there was a lot more people putting out information, which kind of turns into the telephone game where it's like, okay, this person is getting information from this blog. Who's getting information from that blog who, you know, downstream 10 people from the actual research paper. So we ended up with a lot of misinformation out there. So a lot of, you know, not really sure how to do the diet the right way. I'm not really sure how to, you know, understand like what happens with cholesterol on the diet. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Just a lot of misinformation. And then at that same time, also because of the popularity of it, we saw a whole industry created around it. You know, there was now all of a sudden opportunity for food products and supplements to, you know, come into the space and and target the many people who are interested in, in the ketogenic diet. And so, you know, I, you mentioned in the intro, I work for perfect keto. Perfect Keto was actually one of the first food companies in the keto space. And actually at the time, they weren't a food company. They were just a supplement company, but one of the first ones in the space. And I was actually a product user of Perfect Keto for about two years before starting to work for them. And I remember when they first came to the market, just being like, wow, like, you know, I'd been studying keto for two or three years. Now we, there's actually a keto brand out there, right? There's like somebody, you know, putting some products out there. And, you know, perfect keto has always done a real good job of having a clean label. You know, they do a lot of testing with blood sugar to make sure that their products aren't spiking blood sugar, testing to make sure products are keeping people in ketosis, very strict, you know, guidelines on what's allowed in the products and what's not. I would say a lot of the first few keto companies that came around were like that. There was Mm -hmm. kind of this want to be really clean and to have a product that has some staying power. And then over the last couple of years, we've seen that completely go out the window. We've seen, like you mentioned, a ton of, you know, really just it's back to just processed foods. Like we have these foods that are, we're labeling as keto friendly. We slap the keto friendly low net carb label on them. You take any one of them and you test your blood sugar and your blood sugar goes through the roof. I know there's, you know, one brand in particular where I've measured my blood sugar response to a product that they market as three grams of net carbs. And my blood sugar doubled after taking it, which is insane if you know about blood sugar. So Definitely a lot has changed over the last few years. And, you know, I always kind of say it's easy to say that it's a bad thing that all these companies have come into the space and that, you know, all this misinformation is out there. But I still think that at the end of the day, even the worst version of a keto diet is probably better than the standard American diet. So if, you know, all of this popularity is getting more people kind of aware of, you know, monitoring their carb intake and, and prioritizing protein and healthy fats, then I think in the long run, it's a good thing. But it's definitely, we're kind of getting to the point now where we need some more controls on it. We need somebody kind of, you know, moderating the conversations a little bit more to make sure that they're going in the right direction. I think we need more food industry controls that are, you know, kind of monitoring for what's actually considered keto. That's something that we don't have right now. Like there's in the food industry, you know, for every other label that you want to put on your food product, there's kind of a defining care. There's like a, you have to fall within a certain reference range to make this certain claim and to, you know, label your product as keto friendly. Those reference ranges don't exist yet. Mm -hmm. So I think those are some things that we need to improve on, but yeah, I mean, it's crazy to see how things have changed just over the last five to 10 years too. You know, I'm 
like I said, I've only been in this space for probably about seven years now, but just even in that short time frame, going from, you know, I would bring up keto and nobody would know what it is to now I have people asking me like, Hey, have you heard of the keto diet? I'm like, yeah, I know all about it. <laughs> well, I think it's really invaluable to have that kind of historical perspective and for full disclosure, I've tried perfect keto bars because I'm always trying things for clients. Like, let me try this out. They're yeah. actually really delicious. And I have no doubt whatsoever, much like, you know, I think about primal kitchen is another yeah. option, you know, people that are looking for whole 30 compliant or ketogenic type products that they can have at the ready, as opposed to having to make everything from scratch. And I'm a complete realist. I got lots of questions for you, but one of them that I got in, and I also too have to explain this quite often when we're talking about a ketogenic diet, there's a lot of variability on the amount of carbohydrates someone can consume. I've seen things as low as 20. I've seen 30. I've seen 50. If the average American is consuming 250 to 500 grams of carbs a day, which is unbelievable, but if 88% of our population is metabolically unhealthy, that makes sense. I would imagine any reduction in carbohydrates would be beneficial, but for you personally, where is your threshold? Because I see even within the keto community, there's a lot of differences in how this question is answered. And since I get answered it, I get asked so frequently, I thought I would ask you what your definition of, you know, what the threshold for carbohydrates are. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, it is a really tough question because mm -hmm. it does change a little bit for everybody. And it depends on, you know, are we talking net carbs or total carbs, which we can get into that a little bit, but in general, my recommendation is if you are a beginner, then I think you should stay below 30 grams of total carbs. So that's not net carbs. That's total carbohydrates with the majority of that coming from leafy green vegetables, fiber sources. Now, as you get a little bit more adapt, and that's just assuming that, you know, if we're talking to the masses here, the majority of people that are going to be starting a ketogenic diet are probably doing it to lose weight, which means that they're probably, as you mentioned, metabolically inflexible or, or metabolically unhealthy, meaning that, you know, if you are insulin resistant, metabolically unhealthy, you don't metabolize carbs. Well, like you said, you know, any reduction is going to be beneficial, but the more we can bring it down, the better. And to get into ketosis in that situation, it is going to require a little bit more severe carbohydrate reduction than for say somebody who's metabolically healthy. Now, as you follow a ketogenic diet and you start to become more insulin sensitive, because we do know that that happens, you start to restore your metabolism in, in some ways. And this is when you can start to you kind of experiment with a higher carb intake. And I think at that point, once you get, you know, we quote, say we fad adapted is kind of the term that we use. Once you get to that point, then I think your carb amount depends on, you know, what's required to keep you in ketosis if staying in ketosis is your goal. So, you know, we don't have to stay in ketosis all the time, but if your goal is to stay in ketosis, then I think that carb amount changes to, you know, what's the threshold that allows you to maintain ketone production. But as a general rule of thumb, you know, the snapshot answer is less than 30 grams of total carbs for somebody who's starting keto. I think that there are a lot of people that, and there are a lot of products. Again, it gets very confusing for consumers. I think it's even confusing for probably researchers and healthcare yeah. professionals as well to try to navigate because the net carbs throw everyone off. So right. for purposes of our explanation, let's unpack net carbs versus total carbs so that people fully appreciate and understand there are a lot of nuances to this. And so if you're really focusing on net carbs, you might be way over the threshold you were just talking about. 
Yeah, for sure. So, you know, big difference here is total carbs are all the carbohydrates that you consume. So if you pick up a food product and you flip it around, you look at the label, you'll see a breakdown where it'll say total carbs, and then you'll see fiber, sugar. And then for a lot of the low carb products, you might see like sugar alcohols or additional sweeteners in there. So total carbs is all of the carbs that you're consuming. So that's your fiber. That's, you know, sugar, that's everything. And then net carbs is when we subtract fiber from our total carb count. So if you were to look again at the back of a food product, you would take, let's say the total carbs are 17 and the fiber is 11. You would subtract that to get six net carbs. And the kind of the thought process here is that fiber is a non blood sugar spiking carbohydrate. So because it's not going to be spiking your blood sugar, which is what kicks you out of ketosis, then the idea that, you know, for proponents of the net carb approach is that, you know, if we're, as long as we're not getting over say 20 or 30 grams of net carbs, then we're not going to have to worry about our blood sugar spiking. And, you know, my issue with this before, when I first started keto, I was a lot more about the net carb approach because there was, you know, if you were consuming carbs, they were coming from vegetables. That was really all you could do. But now with all of these food products that are coming into the market, it's very easy for you to consume 30 grams of, you know, net carbs, but then have your total carb count be, you know, 80 and those fiber sources that we're talking about actually spiking blood sugar, that product I mentioned earlier that doubled my blood sugar. Like there was, I think 17 grams of fiber in there, which was the reason why that was listed so low. So, you know, people could be eating, you know, 10 packs of this product a day and think that they're, you know, staying in ketosis, but if they test their blood sugar, they'd be just as good if they were eating, you know, a candy bar, just not even close to being in keto. So I think that's the biggest reason why I make that recommendation for total carbs. And even outside of that, like even before those food products came around, if you're somebody who's new to keto, what happens when you start tracking net carbs is that, you know, you can get 30 grams of sugar in and then another 20, 30 grams of carbs. And again, now you're up at 60 grams of total carbs. Now, for somebody who's been following keto for six months, eight months, a year, that might not be an issue. But for somebody who, again, is metabolically inflexible, doesn't handle carbohydrates well, this might prevent you from ever really getting into a state of ketosis. And it's one of the main reasons why you'll hear people say, you know, I tried keto, but it didn't work for me, or I was never able to get into ketosis. I was like, well, you know, what were you doing? It's like, well, I was tracking net carbs and, you know, sticking below 30. It's like, well, let's take a look at your, you know, my fitness power, whatever you use. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, well, your total carbs were at 75. So you never really gave your body a chance to get into ketosis and get adapted. So that's kind of the thought process with it. I think, you know, I'm not so married to my ways to say that, you know, net carb approach won't work for some people. But for the people that I work with, and whenever I'm talking about keto, I always like to talk about total carbs because I think it's just a better way to look at the diet. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remote remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body 
It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators, the mitochondria, new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at Timeline dot com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Well, and I think if most people are coming to a ketogenic-ish, paleo-ish kind of lifestyle, I think most people are looking for weight loss and body composition change. And if that's indeed the case... For the same reason, when people come to fasting and they want to have these super fatty coffees and try to explain like the nuances of, yes, technically a teaspoon of MCT oil is not going to be an issue. But if you're trying to lose weight, adding copious amounts of fat 
to your coffee is probably yep. not the right strategy. <laughs> right. You know, really meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. So I think it goes without saying that, you know, we are in an unprecedented times, and I'm not referring to the ongoing slash previous pandemic really talking about the metabolic health of not just the United States, the most westernized countries. And so, you know, obviously you've been deeply steeped in the research and I'm curious because I like to talk about this topic in particular with a lot of our guests. I'm curious what you think are some of the bigger contributors to the degree of metabolic inflexibility, the degree of obesity, and those being overweight. As I mentioned earlier, I think the most recent statistic is that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. Wow. And so that really speaks to the fact that we are, you know, those of us that are metabolically healthy are becoming more and more of a rarity. And so what do you feel like are some of the bigger contributors to this unfortunate situation that we're in right now in terms of, you know, not only looking at the potential changes that will come to the healthcare system, but, you know, looking at the fact that we have generations now that may not be as healthy as their parents or their grandparents. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think to answer the question, you really have to look at, you know, what is the root cause of our most common chronic diseases? And if you, and there's a really great book I have to recommend to out there called why we get sick by Dr. Ben Bickman. Fantastic. I love Dr. Bickman. Yeah. Dr. Bickman is just like, he's one of my guy. Like Mm -hmm. if I'm making a Mount Rushmore of scientists, (laughs) he's definitely on my Mount Rushmore, but his book really breaks it down. I think the best for everybody to understand. But Mm -hmm. if you look at all of our most common chronic diseases, so look at diabetes, metabolic syndrome, cancer, cardiovascular disease, all of these conditions, we see insulin, obesity, insulin resistance is involved in all of these things. And, you know, with some of them, there's the question of, you know, chicken or the egg, like, is it a cause of the condition or is it causing the condition? In my opinion, I don't think it really matters because I think when you see insulin resistance in these conditions, I think that offers a therapeutic target. Like that's what we should be targeting because there's something we can do about it. That's the the beautiful thing about insulin resistance is it's very treatable. So, you know, knowing that insulin resistance is a root cause or at least playing a role in all these chronic conditions, then what's causing insulin resistance is the next question. And I think there's two primary things, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors, right? Like not getting good sleep and, you know, not exercising and being too stressed out. Like those definitely are causing it. But I think the two things that are moving the needle the most are refined carbohydrates or processed carbohydrates and seed oils, I think are the two biggest things. So, you know, insulin resistance at its basis is our body, you know, having way too much carbohydrate, way too much blood sugar for too long, causing, you know, our insulin to stay high for too long. And then this leading to our cells becoming resistant to insulin's actions, which leads to a tons of downstream effects that cause all the different conditions that we just talked about. So carbs definitely play a role here. Now that doesn't mean that we should demonize carbs. That doesn't mean that nobody should have carbs. It means that if you are over consuming carbs for a long period of time, you develop insulin resistance. And when you are insulin resistant, your body does not handle carbohydrates. Well, it's a pretty easy way to look at it. So And, you know, big difference between, you know, a sweet potato and a, you know, processed carbohydrate, like a potato chip, right? So those, you know, when we're talking about carbs for somebody who's insulin resistant, carb source probably doesn't matter that much, 
but for somebody who's healthy can probably tolerate some of these other carb sort, you know, natural whole food carbs a little bit better, but for everybody, the processed carbohydrates that contain all of the refined sugar that cause the big blood sugar spikes, those aren't going to be ideal for our health. And that's starting to get a lot of attention. I do think people are starting to realize that the second one though, that I think people aren't looking at enough is the vegetable oils or the refined seed oils. It's, you know, it's in every food, like, you know, we know fried foods, obviously, but even packaged foods and even packaged foods that are labeled as healthy are loaded with these refined seed oils. And what we're talking about here with vegetable oils and seed oils is they kind of get thrown into the same group, but you know, canola oil, rapeseed, safflower oil, corn oil, peanut oil, soybean oil. And you look at some of these food products, I always laugh. You'll see that it'll say like corn and or canola oil in it. Like they don't even know what's in it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> We just know it's all bad. <laughs> yeah. There's something bad in there. We just don't know what it is. And you know, what this does is, is this is a fat that one can cause insulin resistance. So we have research showing that these fats can cause insulin resistance. They can get stored in our bodies. They can get stored in fat cells that can become overactive and start shuttling these um, damaging fats into our bloodstream. This leads to, you know, inflammation, which is a big issue. So, you know, that's something that we're not thinking about that enough. So when you look at like, all right, standard American diet, in my mind, the first thing that always comes to mind is like a McDonald's cheeseburger and fries, right? Like that's just, to me, that seems like what it's the essential. standard it's Yeah. It's the essential. <laughs> and you look at that and it's like, all right, we got a grain fed patty with a processed carbohydrate bun with high fructose corn syrup, uh, ketchup on it with French fries that are fried in, you know, whatever they're using, probably peanut oil or, you know, soybean oil, whatever it is. And it's like, that is a recipe for metabolic distress. Mm -hmm. That's a recipe for insulin resistance, which is a recipe for all the chronic diseases that we're seeing today. So, you know, probably an oversimplification for anybody who's, you know, really educated in the space looking at it. But I think from a practical standpoint, it's like, if you want to know the two things you can do to move the needle the most in the positive direction towards better metabolic health, it's going to be getting rid of those seed oils and it's going to be getting rid of those processed carbohydrates. And if you do those two things, I think you're going to be, you know, really making moves towards better health. Well, I have to wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think in particular, seed oils, the more that we understand how they work. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Kate Shanahan. I know yeah. that Ben Bickman recently said the most consumed fat in the United States is soybean oil because it's yep. proliferative in the processed food industry. And anytime you go out to a restaurant, you very likely are getting your dressing or maybe your steak. I mean, all these things are being cooked and these refined, okay. highly refined, inflammatory, oftentimes rancid oils. That the most important thing you could do is if you do nothing else, just read food labels. And so much to the embarrassment of my teenagers, they know I'm like, don't even put anything in a cart that has canola oil. And every once in a while, I'll do these segments in Costco or TJ Maxx, TJ Maxx, Trader Joe's. And every once in a while, I will be fooled and I'll get something home because I'm going to do a video and I'll realize I just take it back. I have no shame. I mean, it has not been open, but I take it back because I'm like, I refuse to give this to my family. But I think it's yeah. important for people to understand that Seed oils, like at a cellular level, they damage our mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of our cells. And my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that they can actually disrupt the health of that cellular membrane for up to two years. So mm -hmm. it really, you know, our bodies really take this massive hit between oxidative stress, inflammation, you know, making us more prone to insulin resistance. I know Kate Shanahan talks a lot about how seed oils will beguile carbohydrate addiction, which then drives that insulin resistance, you know, pathway. So certainly things that we want to be thinking about 
I even think about, you know, just how people like Ansel Keys in the 1950s really pushed the needle to make the focus on fat as opposed to sugar and really suppressing a lot of information, cherry picking, which I'm sure something drives you as a researcher, I'm sure probably drives you crazy. Oh yeah. But I think it's really important for people to understand there's been this big agenda that, you know, the processed food industry Big ag. I mean, a lot of the foods that are subsidized by the federal government are exactly the foods that you find in all these processed foods. And so I guess from, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I just like spreading information to make people aware. And so, you know, reading food labels is certainly one piece of the puzzle. You know, changing your diet is another. But I love how you, I know that you're a fan of eating less often. Mm -hmm. And so let's kind of walk through some of the changes, some of the things that happen, you know, pathophysiologically or physiology wise that happen when we're eating less often, as opposed to more frequently, because one of the things that happens when we come out of these highly processed, hyper palatable, highly addictive standard American diet is that people are eating more frequently, which means they're secreting more insulin. Insulin's up, fat burning is down, but Mm -hmm. let's kind of like walk through on kind of a basic level. Some of the things that happen in the body when we're eating less frequently, some of the beneficial things, because I always find this so interesting, especially for people maybe who need to hear it for the 15th time before (laughs) they're really receptive to the value of eating. I always say eating less often as opposed to saying fasting, because for some reason, the thought of not eating for some people triggers them in very, you know, unfortunate ways. So I say, okay, let's eat less often and see how that works. Yeah. You know, I like putting it that way too, because I think when you say fasting, people only think about you know, the not eating breakfast or whatever in the morning, but the eating less often, it's also the, you know, not eating as much in between meals, which I think is a, an additional benefit of just like the fasting approach. So I really like that. I think it's funny outside of like the bad recommendations that we've made to eat vegetable oils and to remove plant protein or to remove uh, animal protein and, you know, all of that stuff. I think one of the most criminal recommendations that we've had is to eat a bunch of small meals a day to ramp up our metabolism. It's there's, you know, never been any science to support that. There's never even been bad science to support that. It just doesn't exist. I think, you know, theoretically it makes sense to people so that we like to say that, but that's just not what happens at all. So, you know, like you kind of mentioned the bad things about eating frequently, you're basically bathing your body in a pool of insulin when you're eating all of the time. And and that's what's happening when you're having meals every two hours. So when we start eating a lot less frequently, what happens is a few things. One is that we allow our blood sugar and our insulin levels to lower having insulin present and having blood glucose present is not a bad thing. It's when they're constantly being stimulated and they're constantly elevated is when it becomes an issue. So even if you're not eating, let's say a ketogenic diet, just eating less frequently and consuming, you know, even if it's still a moderate to higher carb diet, you're still going to be allowing your, you know, metabolic machinery to take a break. You're going to allow blood glucose to come down. You're going to allow insulin to come down. And we know there's a ton of benefit to that. But at the same time, we're also going to allow our body to start kind of dipping into its own energy stores. So even the leanest of people, we have like tens of thousands of calories in stored fat that is ready to be used. It's ready to be shuttled out and to be used for energy. And we want to be using that energy. We want to, you know, when we're constantly in a fed state, we're constantly running on the energy that's being supplied in our diet, but we want to kind of clean out and use that stored energy so that it's just, you know, like anything else, like we got to remove the clutter, right? Like we just want to get it out, use it, put it to good use. And then, you know, the added benefit to doing that is that when you're, you know, getting rid of those stored fatty acids, you're metabolizing them. Some of those get converted into ketones, which is going to happen at, you know, varying levels, depending on how 
long you're waiting in between meals. So if you're, you know, just fasting for a few hours in between, or, you know, eating less frequently for just a few hours, that's going to be maybe a small level of ketone production. But when you start talking about longer duration, fast 16, 20 plus hours, now you're talking about much greater ketone production. And, you know, we can get into the benefits of ketosis and ketones, um, but there's a lot of benefits to that. And even just very simple ones, like having more energy, mental clarity, better mood, just those lifestyle things that make us feel better and help us get through the day. So those are a few things. And then, you know, the, obviously the other thing is the digestive part of it, right? So I think the idea we think is that we can, you know, metabolize a meal and we're done with it. Like two hours after eating it is what people think, but this isn't true at all. You know, there's been some really interesting studies that have shown that, you know, you're still digesting food for 12, 14, 16 hours after you eat a meal. So when we're constantly eating every two, three, four hours, we're creating this backlog of food that needs to be digested, which is going to mean that one, we're not able to, well, for one, we're going to be overworking our digestive system, right? So that's kind of problem number one, but two, we're not really going to be allowing for optimal nutrient absorption because we have this backlog of food that we have to work through. So this is a huge issue. And when we talk about insulin resistance, this is even more the case. So people who are insulin resistant, not metabolically healthy, this even affects their digestive systems where their digestive systems will move slower. Mm -hmm. And they're even, you know, so for somebody who is maybe, you know, has a, you hear high metabolism and people think that that's related, you know, mostly to digestion, it does play a role into our digestion and people who do have you know, a little bit better metabolic health are going to digest foods a little bit easier. But for the standard person who is, you know, not metabolically healthy, like we keep throwing that term out there, but not metabolically healthy for them to eat every two hours, every three hours in an attempt to restore their metabolism couldn't be more counterproductive. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that definitely ranks up there. Like if I were to make a list of like the top, you know, the best worst diet advice is the eating every couple hours definitely ranks up in the top three. Yeah, no. And it's interesting to me because that was what I was taught. And I attended a big research institution. That's mm -hmm. what I was taught. And that's what I told my patients. And I told all my cardiology patients that they needed to avoid saturated fat and use low fat, non-fat. I mean, it makes me cringe to even think about Brummel and Brown and all these plant-based seed yeah. oil garbage crap that I used to recommend to them. I'm glad that, you know, now we know better, yeah. but there's still a lot of bad science. There's still a lot of bad information. I think about my plate, you know, the food guide pyramid has digressed into my plate and my kids mm -hmm. would always get into quote unquote trouble because they would tell the teachers that isn't right. Like my mother <laughs> would never say have this three quarters of my plate be carbs, a little smidge of protein and no fat. You know, they just said that's not consistent with what my mom teaches and you know, the teachers, I would always end up getting a message and then I would explain context and then they would just let it go. But right. that's even being propagated with our children. Mm -hmm. What I find really interesting about meal frequency as it pertains to digestion, for many people may not know, there's something called the migrating motor complex. And so mm -hmm. I think this is such a cool mechanism in our bodies, but it's how our body's kind of pushing food forward, you know, in the small intestine and you know, it has antimicrobial properties, meaning it's supposed to can kill off pathogens. And you really do need several hours in between eating for this to work properly. And so what ends up happening for many people is that meal frequency disrupts this, you know, that we have multiple ways in our body that it helps protect us from pathogens. But, you know, one is like hydrochloric acid in the stomach and a multiple bile, all these other things. Mm -hmm. But you start thinking about this domino effect on digestion, is it any wonder that 
people are chronically constipated or they think it's normal to have irritable bowel syndrome or they think it's normal to have like, you know, just have things not be normal. Like if I don't need to poop every day and I tell people all the time, if you're not going to the bathroom every day, there's a problem. Right. Right. (laughs) So really kind of looking at those nuances. And so when we're thinking about a ketogenic diet and we're thinking about ketosis and we're thinking about eating less often, and you touched on some of the benefits, how do you typically navigate slash handle when people are still having cravings despite doing this? Because I, I think that the other piece of the puzzle with these, this history of hyperpalatable foods, highly processed foods, is that we have people who are, you know, they're looking for something salty. They're looking for something sweet. And Mm -hmm. I'm not just referring to women. I think this happens to both genders because I hear questions all over the place, but how does the ketogenic diet or even a low carb diet help mitigate some of those things? Because I think the macro structure for anyone who's listening, who's maybe not as familiar as with that can definitely benefit satiety and feeling satisfied, which a lot of people, when they're already metabolically unhealthy, they have disruption in communication between key hormones like leptin and ghrelin. And so they don't get hunger and satiety cues like the rest of us do. And so I think that's really kind of an important piece to kind of touch on. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the reduction in cravings and hunger on keto is something that's been well-documented. And I think, you know, some of the first studies on that came out in like 2010 or 2011. So that's, we've definitely have a decent amount of research on it. There's a few mechanisms that kind of allow this to happen. One is the macronutrients that you recommended. So, you know, for one, if we have low carbohydrate intake, once we get adapted to that, we're going to have much more stable blood sugar levels, which is going to, uh, in general, just prevent us from having hunger. When we have big peaks and valleys in our blood sugar, that's going to cause us to just stimulate more hunger, especially at that low end of the valley. So that's a big one. Eating more protein is another one. So protein we know is a satiating nutrient. It's going to help us just stay a little bit more full, a little bit more satisfied. And then fat, same thing. When we have more fat, our body kind of, you know, fat from an energy standpoint contains over double the amount of energy as protein and carbs. So, you know, when we have some of that, our our body recognizes that we have good energy availability. So it will help reduce our hunger and cravings. And then same thing with the ketones. So when we're, we're in ketosis, you know, the body recognizing that we have ketones present in the blood, that's another energy source. So that's going to be another thing that's going to help, you know, signal to the brain, Hey, we have enough energy. We don't need to stimulate hunger. Now on the kind of physiological side of things, there's also changes in hunger hormones that happens. So we know that when the body's in ketosis, we see changes in many different hunger hormones and many different hunger mechanisms that allow us to just not experience as much of that hunger. So There's a lot of science out there to support this, but not everybody experiences it, right? Like you hear all the time, people saying, well, like, when does that happen for me? Like, I haven't experienced this yet. And kind of a few things that that happen here, why people don't experience it. One is that you have to get there first, right? So it's like, you're not going to start a keto diet tomorrow. And all of a sudden your hunger and cravings are gone. So the kind of first things first is that you do have to allow yourself some time to get adapted. But the second thing is, you know, you talk about hyperpalatable foods and this increase in the packaged food space, you know, the keto friendly packaged food space has allowed us to create a lot of foods that are still hyperpalatable despite being low carb. 
And even though you might not be getting, you know, even with the best ones of these, you might not be getting the same blood sugar spike and some of the physiological stuff that would make you hungry. You're still going to be getting that mental component of it. You're still going to be, you know, when you taste something sweet or you taste something very palatable, whether it's like salty, savory, whatever it is, it can stimulate more hunger. And when we're doing that frequently, that's going to cause us to have more hunger. So that's a big thing too, is I always say, if, if you're not experiencing the reduced hunger and cravings benefit of a keto diet, one of the first questions I have is, is, you know, what's the diet look like? Are you eating more of a whole food keto diet, which is kind of, that should be like 90 plus percent of what our keto diet should look like. Or are you consuming, you know, the keto diet where it's fat bombs and cream cheese and butter on everything. And you know, that approach. So I think that's a big one, but then, you know, kind of going back to the macronutrients for a minute too. I think that I'm personally not a big fan of what's become the conventional keto macronutrients. I think that 20% protein is too low. Those recommendations have come from, you know, people say they came from epilepsy when we first started keto for epilepsy, but that was, it was even lower. Like for epilepsy, it was like 10% protein. So I don't really know where the 20, 25% protein came from. I know there's the fear that protein is going to kick you out of ketosis. So maybe that's why we've decided to eat less, but there's no reason to be overly restricting our protein. And when we do restrict our protein that low, that is going to cause us to see increases in hunger. It's almost inevitable that if I have, and I do see this a little bit more common with women versus men is the lower protein approach. You know, women sometimes barely getting to the 20% threshold, let alone 25 or 30 and having hunger problems. And when I kind of look at their macronutrients and say, you know, let's just make one switch before we do anything else. Let's just try to bump this protein from like 15, 20% up to like 30, 35% and just see what happens. And for a lot, I mean, at this, you're talking about when you do that, now each meal that you have is you're getting, you know, closer to 25 to 35 grams of protein in that meal, which is going to help keep you satiated between the meals. So I think that's a big thing with it too. The low protein and, you know, the low calorie approach too. Like if you're somebody who is doing keto and you're kind of used to that calorie counting, like I'm going to eat 1200 calories and, you know, hop on the elliptical bike for two hours, that's going to put your body in a state of hunger, right? Like you're, yeah. there's no way that you're going to be able to feel satisfied doing it that way. So you know, I think the, when we talk about the hunger and the cravings aspect of a keto diet, it's all predicated on doing the diet the right way and giving your body time to adapt to the diet. Because, you know, we do know that when you first start keto, there's a lot of changes that have to occur. And there's a lot of, you know, you talk about like the keto flu symptoms and things like that. There's a lot of things that will get in your way those first couple of weeks. But once you get through those and you continue doing the diet the right way, that's when you start getting to some of these, you know, big benefits that we love seeing, which is the reduced hunger and cravings. And I think it's really important for people to understand. And, and I'm a huge proponent of hitting your protein macros. In fact, I am a big proponent of protein being the most important macronutrient, especially for women and men at this stage of life. Like I'm obviously in my forties and, you know, there's something called sarcopenia that I seem to talk about probably with every podcast lately, <laughs> this muscle loss with aging is going to happen unless you do the things to ensure that it doesn't. And one of those things is strength training. And number two is getting adequate protein intake. Yep. Now, I love that you kind of alluded to some of the mistakes you see people making, what are some of the other more common ones? And I can tell you just from personal experience, I see a lot of people that well-meaning people that overeat, you know, very kind of, I would say of the ketogenic type foods, more hyper palatable, like cheese and nuts, because it's easy. In fact, I have to portion out my macadamia nuts. It's like, I give myself one portion and that's it. Cause they're perfectly salted and they're delicious. And I savor every single one, yeah. but cheese and nuts are one thing. And the other thing is 
how often people start fasting as one example, they may not even be technically doing a ketogenic diet and they think electrolytes are a joke. Like when I say to them, Mm -hmm. I really want you to take electrolytes and then they develop, which I'm sure you'll probably allude to the side effects when you're losing quite a bit of renal sodium salt in your urine that they develop you know, symptoms that don't make them very happy. So let's touch on that because I think it's always good for listeners to hear it from someone other than myself. What are some of the other more common mistakes that you see? Yeah. So you definitely hitting on a lot of them there. I'd say number one is actually there's probably three that I would put right up there as all being like the most common that I see. The low protein is a big one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just seeing people start going to low protein, seeing plenty of side effects from that. Just because if you go to a website and you type in keto macros, what comes up is already too low. So, you know, your base thing that you're going to find is too low. Number two is eating too much fat, which I get so much flack for bringing this one up. People are just like, what are you talking about? It's keto. And I always kind of laugh. It's like, do you understand the concept of too much? Like I didn't say eating fat. I said eating too much fat, you know, eating too much of anything is a bad thing, right? So we get caught up in this, oh, it's keto if there's more fat in it. Like I need to douse everything in oil. I need to put butter on everything. Like that's fine. And you can definitely see some benefits doing it that way, but it's not necessary. I think that prioritizing protein over prioritizing fat on a ketogenic diet is a great strategy for being successful. So that's a big one. But then the electrolytes that you brought up, that's one that was electrolytes. I was still kind of learning about the body and learning about what happens under conditions of low insulin and was not aware that how much, you know, your body dumps electrolytes and then also not realizing how important electrolytes are. Like if you look at the function of any organ or the function of any cell in the body, they are heavily relying on electrolytes, which, you know, kind of with the most common ones being the magnesium, sodium, potassium, there's definitely plenty of other minerals out there that are important. These are kind of the big three where it's like, if you're deficient in them, you're going to know it. And this is where you get these keto flu symptoms. Everybody always talks about keto flu. Sometimes I think it's mistakenly called carbohydrate withdrawal, which (laughs) I don't love referencing it that way, because I think it kind of hints at that like your body needs carbohydrates and that if your body's kind of like having like a withdrawal from not having them, like, oh, I need to have a few to kind of wean off or something like that. What's really happening is that when you start, you're dumping a ton of water, you're dumping a ton of electrolytes, and this causes the digestive issues that might come up at the beginning. It causes the brain fog, the muscle cramps, muscle weakness, fatigue, all of those things that you will hear people complain about, which are a lot of the reasons why you'll hear somebody again say, I tried keto. It wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was because they were dealing with those symptoms and they didn't know what to do about them. Supplementing with electrolytes, whether, you know, both supplementing and consuming them in whole food forms is important. I think on any low carb diet, no matter where at in your journey you are, but especially for a beginner, you really want to have those electrolytes. And then, you know, I think the other two that I would add one kind of going along with the protein and fat thing, I think not prioritizing red meat, I think is a big thing. Like you know, you mentioned the fears that we have around saturated fat and everything like that. I see a lot of people doing keto diet where they are doing lean meat, like chicken and Turkey, and then adding in fat in the form of like, you know, dairy or oils or salad dressings. And, you know, I think that's okay every once in a while, but you know, red meat is really the most nutrient dense food that we can eat, especially as it relates to us. Like we know it's loaded with nutrients, but if you read any study looking at the way that we absorb nutrients from red meat, it's far and away superior to any other food source. So with keto diet, with fasting, with any type of diet, I think too often we get hung up on the 
this is what I'm taking out of my diet mm-hmm. and not thinking about what I'm putting in my diet, right? It's not just about the what's coming out. It's about what we're putting in. And we like, while we want to cut back carbs and seed oils and all of those things, we want to make sure that we're replenishing it with nutrient dense and bioavailable foods, which red meat is one of those big ones. So I think, you know, I always talk to people who are seemingly doing everything else right. And then you look at you know, what the actual food is that they're eating. And I see them eating a lot of, you know, either going plant-based with their protein or, you know, doing really lean white meats and making that switch to red meat really helps. And that kind of goes along the same lines of the last one for a common mistake I see, which we've been hitting at the whole podcast. And that's just not consuming enough real foods, going for packaged foods. doesn't matter if there's a keto. I work for a company and we put keto, our products are keto friendly. You should not have you know, the majority of your calories should not be coming from our products. And I think we have the best products out there, right? It's just, that's not what a good diet looks like. No food labels. It looks like, you know, whole foods that are being consumed in their natural form. Because, you know, when you really look at, it's interesting when you look at even, you know, omega-6 fatty acids and linoleic acid that we were talking about, like those fats are also present in things like fish and eggs. But when you look at the research on them, those foods come with other compounds and molecules that go along with the linoleic acid and the omega-6 fatty acids that either keep them in check or allow them to do beneficial things in our bodies. When you extract those omega-6, you know, those nutrients out, or just you're extracting anything out of a food uh, to put it in a packaged or processed form, you're losing the, what was intended for that food, right? How it was supposed to be consumed and how it was supposed to interact with our body and kind of now introducing a foreign substance into your body. So long-winded way of saying just, I think we need to be eating more real food. Mm -hmm. If you have a farmer's market around you, I think the best thing for you to do is go to the farmer's market and get the majority of your food there, you know, getting your plants, getting your fruit, you know, getting your meat, whatever it is there. The more that we do that, and the more we avoid stuff with food labels and stuff with really long ingredient lists, the better off we're going to be regardless of what diet we're on. So that's kind of the big five for mistakes that I see on keto. No, there's so much good information in there. And I'm glad that you know, some of the things that I talk to my patients and clients about are definitely things that resonate with you. And I feel like in many ways, we're starting to hit another kind of plant-based focused agenda. You know, you're starting to see, I think Harvard came out with something on Twitter the other day, which I shamelessly retweeted and shamed them (laughs) saying, you know, you can never convince me that a primarily plant-based diet, I'm not saying I don't eat plants. I just focus on animal-based protein Mm -hmm. is equivalent. And I think if someone's trying to navigate a ketogenic diet or a low carb diet being primarily plant-based, it really can be challenging. I think that you know, I think it was Dr. Gabrielle Lyon was saying that, you know, a four ounce piece of steak or six ounce piece of steak is equivalent to six cups of quinoa in terms of protein. And there's no, really no woman, certainly, and certainly probably most men wouldn't be able to finish six cups of quinoa to get the same amount of protein. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, something to give people time to like think and ponder about. Yeah. And I want to well, be Not to mention that the calories would be, you know, I always think with every time they do those comparisons where it's like, you know, take this much of quinoa to meet, you know, this much steak, but it's like, yeah. And your calories would be like probably triple with six cups of quinoa. Yeah. It's just, I mean, and certainly like middle-aged women really have to be mindful of their portions of carbs. I don't care what kind of carb you're eating. You have to be mindful of it. Mm -hmm. 
A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, promoting good gut flora, and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated, and cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose of three grams actually promotes more benefits to gut health, immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equipfoods.com. E-Q-U-I-P foods.com slash Cynthia 20. You definitely want to check this out. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. The indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. And in some circumstances, up to a hundred times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorrow.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R 
PRO.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible. Now, I want to be like super mindful of your time, but there were some things in the book that I definitely wanted to get to. And Keto Answers is Chris's book. And I was telling him before we started recording that I'm just very grateful to have another resource available to refer patients to and clients to that want to learn more. It's really great and accessible information written very clearly, lots of scientific research, but written in a way that it's for the lay public or for clinicians that want to learn more. Let's dive a little bit into MCT oil. This is something that is obviously very popular. My standard kind of joke about MCT oil is you have to be careful with quantity that you're consuming because some people can really give them some digestive distress or as Dave Asprey likes to call it disaster pants. So what do people need to look for when they're considering utilizing MCT oil as a fat source in terms of quality? So I know that there's, you know, this is a byproduct of, you know, coconut oil, but what do they need to look for to find the best quality product to utilize? Yeah, definitely. So I think the idea is like most times when you're searching for a food that has a food label, if you're getting an MCT oil, there shouldn't be anything else on there, but MCT oil, you know, unless you're getting, I know there are some flavored MCT oils out there, but there really, it should be just MCT oil. When you start looking at like some of the powders that are out there. So like there's MCT oil powder, it means it has to be bound to a fiber. That's when you really want to start considering fiber source. Personally, I'm a bigger fan of like a tapioca fiber versus like a soluble corn fiber. Just don't really love the way that soluble corn fiber kind of interacts in in my digestive system. And I've kind of seen that in a lot of people. So that's usually the one that I'll opt for. And then now with more people coming into space, we also have to, with the powders, we have to consider the sweeteners that are being used as well. So, you know, I think you're better off looking for like a monk fruit or a stevia allulose, something like that, as opposed to like, you know, a cane sugar or a, you know, a xylitol or something like that. So that's kind of the big thing. But one thing that I think a lot of people don't know with MCTs that I like to point out, and this isn't necessarily from a health standpoint, but you are starting to see more where it'll be like MCTs derived from coconut or MCTs derived from palm. And from what I've seen in the research, I haven't found a difference in the benefits of doing the palm or of doing the coconut, the MCTs from either one. Mm -hmm. But one of the, the key things is that palm is very destructive to the environment. So if you're somebody who cares about the environment, which that's something like when I buy food, I think I'm thinking health, I'm thinking environment, and then I'm thinking economy. Like that's just probably not how everybody needs to think about purchasing food, but that's just the way that I look at it. So if you're getting something that's sourced from Palm, you want to make sure that says RSPO certified on it, which means that they're just taking more sustainable manners when they're harvesting the Palm. So that's going to be the better option. I think in general, if you have a choice, I would choose MCTs from coconut versus MCTs from Palm, but yeah. haven't found anything from a research standpoint that says one is better than the other besides the environmental part. So, you know, besides that, there's really not a whole lot else to look for on the labels other than there's the different MCT types. So, you know, there's the C8, C10 are kind of the more popular ones. You also see C6 popping up every once in a while. There is a little bit of research showing that, you know, having a straight C8 
might be more beneficial for getting a short-term increase in ketones. I've tested them myself and haven't found a huge difference between the two kind of seen it to be a little bit marginal. I think probably a better approach would be just to do a blend of both. You know, if you get a standard MCT oil, there's going to be a blend of C8 and C10 in there. If you're doing coconut oil, then you're going to have C8, C10, C12. You're going to have basically all of the medium chain triglycerides with it. I think, you know, if your goal is ketone production, you want to opt for an MCT over a coconut oil. Lauric acid, which is the C12 that you find in coconut oil, has its own benefits, not really related to ketone production. Minus, there is some research showing that lauric acid may lead to ketone production in certain cells in our brain. But, you know, generally speaking, if we're talking about like liver production of ketones, doing a C8, C10 is going to be a better option. So that's kind of the basics with it. There's, so far, I haven't seen the MCT world get tainted too much yet. There's not a whole, you know, unless you, I don't know if you've seen anything, but I haven't seen any companies in that are completely putting trash out. Like most of it is just MCT oil that you see. But when you start getting into the powders, that's when you definitely have to be a little bit more aware of what they're putting with the powders. Well, I saw that pop up on Instagram. A chef friend of mine was using it and I asked her what she thought of it. And I think that one was actually from derived from soluble corn. So mm. Not sure I would want to be utilizing that. I think, you know, it starts becoming these nuances, like obviously palm oil derived, I would be less interested in. And for anyone that's listening that says, I I don't understand what you guys are kind of referring to. My understanding is that palm oil extraction impacts orangutans and forestry and those kinds of things. That's my very kind of minimal understanding. So it's, that's kind of what's been plugged into my brain. I have a grad school roommate friend who travel who normally pre-COVID did a lot of traveling. And so, you know, her photos from being in Africa really kind of brought that home for me. So I'm glad that you thoughtful about sourcing. Yeah. Two other areas that I wanted to touch on because I did get questions around both of them. So I know it's not at all uncommon for people to want to do things to boost autophagy, this kind of waste and recycling process in the body that goes on when we're eating less often or for fasting. And so I start to think about things like berberine, and I know that you have several options in the book, as well as nootropic agents, got questions about both of those. So I'd love for us to kind of end our discussion talking about how some of these products can be beneficial, you know, from a health benefits perspective, they can boost some of the benefits that you're getting in ketosis or with autophagy or both. Yeah, for sure. So the one downside about autophagy is that we have no great way of measuring it, unfortunately. So I hope that that's something that changes over the next few years, because I think it would be incredible to have a little meter on you that would Mm -hmm. like be able to track, you know, when you're dipping, you kind of reaching that level of autophagy. But, you know, when it comes to that, berberine is definitely one of the top supplements for that. You know, it's one that's been known to mimic metformin. It's been shown Mm -hmm. to kind of put out very comparable results, which if you're not familiar with metformin, anybody who's listening, that's just a commonly used diabetic drug. And, you know, we see a lot of great research on these, what we call insulin sensitizing agents for, we see a lot of great research on them being able to, you know, get our blood sugar down, improve metabolic health, And then in some cases, you know, theoretically induced autophagy, which is not, again, not something that we can really measure. Now there's a lot of other really good, you know, ingredients out there like chromium and there's, you know, like cinnamon and some other things like that, that can be used to lower blood sugar too. I think berberine far and away is the most effective. I think combining those other ones with berberine may be a good strategy, but in terms of kind of the, what's going to move the needle the most, I think berberine is kind of the go-to there. 
So, and that, you know, when it comes to stuff that's inducing autophagy, it's a pretty short list. Really the only things that I would refer to as having a chance of being able to induce that nothing else is going to, besides like a berberine is going to be able to move the needle as much as just, let's say fasting or, or a ketogenic diet, low carb diet. So, you know, the trying to find a diet and a pill type of thing, I think you're better off most times going for the diet itself. We should think of these supplements as a supplement to the diet, not as something that's going to be, you know, like if you're doing a keto diet and fasting, berberine is going to probably offer a very marginal benefit unless, you know, you're somebody who's very metabolically damaged, you know, pre-diabetic, diabetic, really high blood sugar. So that's kind of the info there. Now, nootropics is something I'm super interested in nootropics. I love them. I like, it's something I've played with for a long time. I do, you know, some experimenting where I just get like raw powders. I have a friend who I'll give him a little shout out. His name is Will Wallace. And just like when it comes to brain supplements, especially he's brilliant. And uh, he's always got something new that he's kind of sending my way to check out. Now, one of the, in my opinion, the best nootropic combo out there, which you know, kind of arguable on whether or not this is a nootropic, but I like alpha GPC and caffeine together. I think that is in really any choline source. So not my area of expertise here, but essentially our brain, you know, has different nutrients that it runs on. Choline is one of them. So, you know, we want to make sure that, and we can get choline through natural sources too, like eggs and whatnot, Mm -hmm. but you know, something like alpha GPC kind of provides that choline source to our brain. And I found that just pairing simply I actually did it right before this podcast, just having like, uh, I think it's, I do like 600 milligrams of alpha GPC with uh, caffeine in some form. So, you know, for me, I'm a lower caffeine dose kind of guy. So, you know, maybe like a hundred milligrams with that. And that's usually about it. So that's probably my favorite combo. And there's some other really interesting nootropic compounds out there as well. I like the ones that are a little bit more on the natural kind of adaptogenic side. Like I like using more of like a rhodiola rosea or an ashwagandha. For me, that's like, I'm not a big stimulant guy. So I'm not really looking for like some of the racidums and some of those other things that are going to, you know, kind of, for me, that's a little bit anxiety provoking. I don't really need, I'm a pretty high energy guy anyway. So anymore (laughs) I I might burst. (laughs) So I like to stick to the things that kind of more get you like an even keel type of thing, which another one that goes really well with that combo too is a theanine. So like doing like a theanine with a caffeine, great combo for kind of giving you the boost of mental clarity, but having a little bit of a calming effect, kind of reducing jitters and things like that. So those are kind of like my list of favorite, like, again, it's not the most exciting list. Like for somebody who's really into nootropics, you're probably wanting to talk about, like I said, the racidums and some of those Mm -hmm. other things. That's just not really my wheelhouse. I kind of like the more natural approach to the nootropics, but I do one more that I will plug too, because there is a lot of negative connotations to it out there, but I actually really enjoy using exogenous ketones as well Mm -hmm. for a nootropic. I hate the way that exogenous ketones have been marketed. Really think that it's, they've gotten a bad reputation for us trying to you know market them as a replacement to the keto diet and things like that. It's just not the case. But when it comes to, you know, providing your brain with a fuel source, it can definitely help with that. And that's, so that's something that I love using an exogenous ketone, like in the afternoon when it's okay, I don't want to have caffeine because I don't want it to impact my sleep, but I still have a few more hours of work that I'd like mm-hmm. to knock out. I'll reach for an exogenous ketone during that time. Not an everyday thing, you know, maybe a couple times a week. And again, not something you'd classify directly as a nootropic, but can have, you know, brain boosting benefits for sure. I think you and I are definitely very aligned because for me, I'm very sensitive to caffeine and L-theanine is like one of my favorite things to stack. If I feel like 
at the end of my day, I need to kind of wind down. But in the morning, green tea ha- is a great source of mm-hmm. a little bit of caffeine as well as some L-theanine. I love the adaptogenic herbs that you mentioned. I'm a huge proponent. And ashwagandha is really interesting because it can be both calming and can also you know, provide a boost in energy. I always say it kind of knows exactly what you need, but I love things like rhodiola. I love mm-hmm. relora. They're definitely all beneficial. And, and what was that last one you said? Relora. So it's derived from magnolia bark. It's R-E-L-O-R-A. I don't know that one. I'll have to look that and look into it. It's I'm not sure really about. beneficial. I mean, I use quite a bit of it with people that are having trouble sleeping because it's definitely more calming. Yeah. It can just like take the edge off and people can drift off to sleep pretty easily. So I'm curious, what are you up to next? Are you writing another book? You obviously have amazing social media content. I was just saying to Chris before we started recording that I really enjoy the content that you put out there and making it clear and evidence-based what your suggestions and recommendations are. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, you know, continuing to put out the content, that's kind of a big thing. I had a little break in between I would say over the last like two years where I had somebody hired out to do my graphic design work for me, like I would plan the graphics, have them do it, just wasn't finding the work that I wanted getting done on that. So I went back to doing them all myself. And so, and which, you know, I actually enjoy doing it, but it is very time consuming. Mm -hmm. So that's something that just continuing to put those out is a big thing. But for big projects coming up, we have, we're relaunching the Keto Answers podcast at Perfect Keto and, and I'll be hosting that. So Super excited about that. It's a podcast that we had in the past, and then now we're bringing it back. So we've already started recording episodes. We're going to be launching that in August. So that's a big project. The other one is I'm launching a coaching program through the Ketologist. So have a small team of dietitians and health coaches that I've kind of assembled to help with this. And we're working on putting that together now. We're actually just starting to accept clients in this last week. So pretty excited about that. It's kind of one of those things where, you know, I was, I used to work with clients when I first got into the space and then I got out of it and working with clients for me is a really great way to kind of keep my ear to the ground on, Mm -hmm. you know, what problems are people having? What questions are coming up frequently? You know, what issues are people having with keto, whether they're a beginner or whether they've been Mm -hmm. doing it for a while. So it's a great way for me to kind of keep my ear on the ground and, you know, continue flexing that muscle of actually helping people and, and, you know, not let that go away. So that's a big one. And then of course, writing, I'm always working on some form of writing. So I just started a new book project that's hoping to put out in, you know, probably it's going to be 22 is going to be when that comes out. I just finished writing a carnivore cookbook that's going to be coming out later this year. I think that comes out in October. So, you know, now that that's off my plate, I'm going to shift to more, you know, cookbook style writing, not really my uh, favorite thing to do. So going to kind of shift back into more of the science style writing and, and work on another keto book here. So pretty excited about that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Let listeners know how they can connect with you on social media and on your website. Yeah. So um, go to at the ketologist on any social media platform. Instagram is kind of the main one for me, where if you have a question and you shoot me a DM, I'll be in there to respond to you. Uh, And then I have my website, theketologist.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Chris. It's been a pleasure. We'll definitely have to bring you back. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Had a great time. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.